always close by. In your name, amen. You may be seated. So in Luke 21, starting in verse 1 through 4, it says, As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put into very small copper coins. Truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, but in, put in all that she had to live on. And so, as I read that earlier today, it, um, it showed me two things like, that this woman declared in her giving. And she declared for one lordship, and she said that my money is not an idol in my life. Um, and then she also declared trust. And she trusted that the Lord would, would provide for her better than her money ever could. And so... I felt super challenged by that and wanted to share that with y'all as well, that even in your giving and as you give sacrificially, um, that your giving uh, declares your lordship and trust in God to be your provider. And so if those with the buckets wouldn't mind coming to join me, we'll go ahead and pray. So Lord, we just thank you that you again are faithful. We thank you that you are a provider Lord, in that, um, in the things that we give, Lord, that you you use for your kingdom, Lord, and so we declare with our giving that you are Lord, and that we trust you, Lord, that um, you will take care of our every need, because uh, that takes better. You take better care of us than money does, and so we thank you, Lord. Amen. Am I on? There I am. Thanks, Liz. Oh, me. Can we pray one more time for my sake, not yours? Well, for yours, too, because you don't want to listen to me talk for the next 20 minutes if I don't get to pray first. So we're going to pray for my sake and for yours. You guys pray for your hearts and for mine, and I'll pray for my heart and for yours. Jesus, we love you so much. Jesus, we are yours and you are ours. And confess over our own hearts and over the hearts of every other person in this room that you, my Lord, will build your church upon your revelation of yourself as the Christ. That all of the work is in your hands, all of the hard things have to be done by your strength, all of the leadership and authority belongs to you, all of the glory and the honor belongs to you. It's our greatest joy, God, to be a tool in your hands and to be a son and a daughter in your kingdom and to partner with you in your work. And I confess in all of it, my king, that it is your work. I'm so thankful, Lord, that your presence is found only in today. It's not found in yesterday, it's not found in tomorrow, it's not found in the hardships and the troubles and the, the challenging decisions that have been made and the things that have to be made. Your presence is found here today in this moment and in today there is rest and there is peace and there is freedom. And so I just pray for all of us, God, that you would help us to be here in this moment today. And to find you and all that you offer and all that you promise here in this moment.
I don't want to miss anything that you have for me. I don't want to miss anything that you have for us. Help us, Lord. Amen? Amen. My father is not a believer yet. I'm, I'm hanging on to the promise of the Lord that someday my dad will be a, lever, be a believer. Truthfully, I thoroughly expect him to be out in the woods someday and get his heart right with Jesus uh, and have an encounter with the Lord while he's sitting under a tree or cutting down a tree or burning a tree. My dad's retired. He spends a lot of time with trees now. And so I have every expectation that someday while he's out in the woods interacting with a tree, he's going to get his life right with the Lord, but he's not going to tell anybody for about six weeks because he just won't know how to say it. So realistically, my dad could be saved already. I just don't know it. But from my perspective, my dad is not a Christian yet. And yet sometimes I think he thinks more like Jesus than I do. A couple days before Christmas, I was at home and I was sitting in my parents' living room. And you know how the conversation just meanders from one topic to another. And at some point you land on this topic and you didn't even know how you got there. It was kind of one of those scenarios where all of a sudden I find myself in the middle of my dad ranting about self-checkout lines. And I'm not even sure how we got there. And my dad has a lot of soapboxes. The self-checkout soapbox I have never heard before. And so I'm kind of eagerly waiting to see where this is actually going to go. Truthfully, I expect it to be a rant about the evils of technology. you, you got to understand that anytime I call my dad on the cell phone, we play this thing that I think is a game, but I also kind of think is real, where he says, hello. I say, hey, old man. He says, hello. I say, can you hear me? Hello. Dad, you have to turn the phone over. Hello, I can't hear you. The phone is upside down. You have to turn the phone over. And we play this game for five, ten minutes. Seriously, five, ten minutes. That's, that's our thing. And so I'm thoroughly expecting a rant about the evils of technology when we start talking about uh, self-checkout lines. But I was surprised in what I heard because the first thing he's talking about is how horrible it is when he goes to the big box store and he gets ready to check out and the person at the cash register is so old that they obviously should be retired. Uh, but what is wrong with our society that this old woman has to work that is obviously not a job of passion, but she can't retire because our society is so messed up. And then he goes on and he keeps talking about, and the evils of the self-checkout is that one person can run six of those self-checkout lines, and every time you go through a self-checkout line, you cost somebody a job. The big box stores went and they put all the mom and pop shops out of business, and they used to hire them to work minimum wage as a cashier, but now they don't even do that. And shame on you if you use the self-checkout lines because you're costing grandma a job. And conviction hit me like a ton of bricks. Because you know what I think when I go into the store and it's time to check out whether I've got two items or a cart full of items? The thing I think when it's time to get out of the store is, how do I get out of here as quickly as possible? But I felt the conviction of the Lord in it. And my greatest sin in this matter is not that I put my own convenience and my own comfort over somebody else's livelihood. The biggest sin and the biggest transgression against the kingdom for me in the matter of the self-checkout line is that it never even occurred to me that there was somebody else to be considered. It never occurred to me that something like going to the self-checkout instead of interacting with a cashier was the difference between somebody else being able to put food on their table. I was so, I have been so self-focused. The highest priority was my own convenience, my own good, my own, uh, what's the word for, for a trivial 
preference. My own preference, that's the word. (laughs) So concerned with my own preference that I didn't even see that my actions affected somebody else. Jesus actually has a lot to say about this. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 25. Verse 31, it should be on the screen. It says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates out the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. I needed a job, and you inconvenienced yourself a little bit so I could have some work. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go and visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, But Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. I'm afraid I'm a goat. If you just want to know the truth of it. In this passage, what is the difference between a sheep and a goat? Whether or not they did something when they had the opportunity to take care of somebody else. Jesus' words sound, sound pretty harsh if we just read them as a standalone, but if we can read another passage in 1 John, it might help us understand a little bit more. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, it says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue or with actions, but in truth. If you're like me, you automatically start trying to justify and say, okay, well, to whom am I supposed to show that kind of generosity and that kind of compassion? Jesus has an answer for that, too, if we look at Luke chapter 6. Verse 32, he says, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. 
Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. I could keep going and going and going. In the scripture, there are more than 2,000 passages that deal with God's heart for the poor and the oppressed and how we should love our enemies. And when I talk about the poor and the oppressed, I do mean those who lack material provision. I mean those who don't have enough resources to meet their, their daily needs. But I also mean those who are poor in spirit. Those who have not found the redemptive, life-giving revelation of who Jesus is. Those who are bound up in brokenness and in anxiety and depression and in solitude and addictions and, and all of the, the faulty pursuits of life. I mean those people who are poor materially, but also those who are poor in spirit. More than 2,000 passages in the scripture that are commands from our God to take care of the poor and to love, love our enemies and to be kind to those who persecute us. I've, I've got this little book up here. It's called The Greatest Thing in the World by Henry Drummond. Uh, Henry Drummond was a, a Scotsman who lived in the 1870s. Um, any of you guys who know me know I love to read books written by old, old dead guys. I think they're the best. Uh, if the author of a book hasn't been dead for at least 50 years, I'm probably not interested in reading it. Uh, in this book, he's, he's referencing back to that passage in Matthew that we read about the sheep and the goats, and this is what he says. He says, in the book of Matthew, the judgment day is depicted for us in the imagery of one seated on a throne who divides the sheep from the goats. The test of a person then is not, how have I believed? but how have I loved? The test of religion, the final test of religion, is not religiousness, but love. I say the final test of religion at that great day is not religiousness, but love. Not what have I done, not what have I believed, not what have I achieved, but how have I acted charitably. Sins of commission in that awful indictment are not even referred to by what we have not done, by sins of omission, we are judged. It could not be otherwise. You guys listen to this. For the withholding of love is the negation of the spirit of Christ, the proof that we never knew him, that for us Christ lived in vain. It means that he suggested nothing in all our thoughts, that he inspired nothing in all our lives, that we were not once near enough to him to be seized with the spell of his compassion for the world. I want to read that last, what is that last slide for you guys? I want to read that one more time. For the withholding of love is the negation of the spirit of Christ. The proof that we never knew him. That for us he lived in vain. It means that he suggested nothing in all our thoughts. That he inspired nothing in all our lives. That we were not once near enough to him to be seized with the spell of his compassion for the world. On the one hand, going through the self-checkout line is not a big deal at all. But we know Jesus uses little things to get our attention in big areas. And the Lord has really been dealing with me on this issue of love. And on this issue of, do I see the people around me? What about you? How well do you love? If love for others is the measure of your love for Christ... If your love for others is the measure of how well you actually know Jesus, how well do you love? I think that within this room, we do a pretty good job of loving each other. 
Now, there's, there's always room for improvement, don't, don't get me wrong. I think we do a pretty good job of taking care of one another and showing kindness and charity and compassion to each other. I hear story after story all the time of D groups pitching together to, uh, to cover somebody else's retreat uh, registration fee. Um, I see you guys celebrating one another all the time, having, having surprise parties and, and birthday parties and, uh, and going on adventures and, and sharing your resources. And every year I'm astounded by the amount of project support that comes out of this room. And I think on a whole, we do a, we do a pretty decent job of loving one another. But I'm wrestling a little bit with the question of, do we love those outside of this room as intentionally as we love the people in this room? Or do we wait until they get in this room to love them with the compassion of Christ? I've got two, two thoughts and a question for you tonight. Thought number one is, the fruit of the Spirit, sorry, Thought number one is, love is a fruit of the Spirit and should flow out of our being. I'm not saying in that that love doesn't require action. Love absolutely requires choice. Uh, love requires intentionality. Even random acts of kindness are not random. The recipient of that random act of kindness might be random, but the action requires great intentionality. What I mean is this. Over and over and over again throughout the book of Leviticus, if you ever need some uh, sleep aid, try reading Leviticus. I listened to it one time while I was driving late at night. Bad idea. Over and over and over again, God says things like, when you build your house, I want you to put a fence around, around the top of your house so that when your neighbors go up there to hang out at a barbecue, they don't trip and fall off. Why? Because I'm your God and I think about things like that and I think about people being safe and taken care of. When you harvest your fields, don't harvest all the way into the corners, but leave a little bit there so that the poor people who don't have fields of their own can come and can glean a harvest from the leftovers. Why should you do that? Because I'm your God and I care about the poor. When a foreigner comes and is in your midst and doesn't speak the language and is really vulnerable because they, because they can't navigate things, take care of that person. Bring them into your home. Be kind to them. Why? Because I'm your God and I care about people who are vulnerable. Over and over and over and over again. Take care of the poor. Take care of the widows. Take care of the vulnerable. Why? Because I'm your God. Because you don't worship the violent gods of the Amalekites. I'm your God. And because I care about kindness and because I am good and because I am gentle and because I am self-controlled and because I am patient and because I am love and I want you to be like me and so we do all these things to be like me. And so love, when it is right, flows out of our being so much more than it flows out of our doing. It produces actions, but it flows out of our being, and the measure with which we love is the evidence of the intimacy that we have cultivated with Jesus and with Holy Spirit. Because love is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It is the byproduct, it is the evidence of a life lived close to Jesus. I think it is possible for us to set out out of our will to do loving actions and actually undermine real love in our own lives. And I mean it from this perspective. If my primary motivation for wanting to do loving actions is because I want to receive a reward. That's my primary motivation, because I want to receive a reward. My love is not actually self-sacrificing. It is actually completely self-serving. 
and I can feed selfishness in my life while deceiving myself into thinking that I'm actually growing closer to the Lord when really I'm just becoming a really well-polished Pharisee. Are you tracking? Love requires choice. Love will produce action. Where it is real love, it will result in actions that flow out of us and that take care of the people around us. But love has to flow out of our being more than our doing. It's less important for us to do loving things than it is for us to be people who love. And if we can get that right, the loving actions will come along with it. Thought number two. I think some of the most deadly enemies of real love might surprise you. If I asked you what are the things that keep you from loving, there are some things that would pop up and would be pretty obvious to you. Things like selfishness and greed and judgment and jealousy. What if I told you I think sarcasm is one of the most deadly enemies of love? Because sarcasm teaches your heart to trivialize other people's pain and embarrassment. Sarcasm teaches you to find joy and humor and entertainment in other people's suffering. And to make light of the challenging things that people are going through. What if I told you I think venting is one of the great enemies of love? Because venting poisons the heart of another person towards somebody that they have never even, even interacted with. If I, if I sit down with Eli and I start venting to her about my kid's sister, my kid's sister did this and this and this and this and this. I don't remember that Eli has ever actually met my kid's sister. Incidentally, her name is Elizabeth as well. Maybe Eli will meet my kid's sister someday. Maybe she won't. If she does, before she ever meets Elizabeth, Eli's heart is already poisoned. She already has a, a perception formed of my sister that is not fair and is not right and is not true of who she is in Christ. And I have, by giving voice to those things, have made them true in my heart, but I've also made them true in Eli's heart, and she doesn't even have any experience to base them off of. Venting is the enemy of love. If I told you I believe that ignorance and apathy are great enemies of love, Ignorance and apathy both feed into the American lie that my problems are mine and your problems are yours and everybody should take care of themselves. When in reality, the biblical truth is that we are all members of one body and if one member suffers, the whole body suffers. That we are to bear one another's burdens. Cody, the Chi Alpha director at uh, UALR, did a breakout session at SALT. I was talking, talking through it with him and he was teaching on biblical justice. I learned a lot from him because one of the things that he was talking about was that the biblical idea of justice is not about things being made right on a legal standing. The biblical idea of justice is about the strong making the plight of the weak their own to bring equality and fairness in the kingdom. And he talks about the quartet of the vulnerable, the, the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the immigrant. And biblical justice is those who are strong take up the cause of the weak and become their defenders and become their providers. That is the biblical standard of justice. And so when I operate out of a place of apathy or ignorance and, well, my problems are mine and your problems are yours and either I don't know because I've taken the time to not know or I don't know because I don't want to and so I've intentionally turned a blind eye. I have set my life to be separated out apart from what the kingdom requires to love justice, to do mercy, and to walk humbly with my God. If I told you unforgiveness is a great enemy of love, it's really hard to sacrifice your good for someone else's when you're also demanding they repay against you. 
You guys think and consider for just a moment in your own heart, what is the greatest enemy of love that you deal with? You consider, consider the people you just don't like very much. I hope to someday be close enough to Jesus that I can't list anybody in the category of people I don't like very much, but I'm not there yet. I'm human. I got a flesh. I hold grudges. I, I pass judgment. I try to catch it and repent for it, but there are folks I don't get along with very well. I'm a work in progress. So think about the folks that it's not easy for you to love that you don't naturally love very much. What stops you from loving them? What stops you from acting charitably towards them? Think about the people that don't like you very much, for whatever reason. Sometimes people don't like us very much because we, we count it an honor to suffer for the name and to be counted with, with the cause of Christ. Sometimes people don't like us very much because we've been a turd to them, and we've got to own both sides of that. So think about the folks who, for whatever reason, don't like you very much. What stands between you and loving those people? This is the hard one. Think about the people who are invisible to you. The individuals or the categories of people that you don't ever see. What stops you from loving those people? The withholding of love is the negation of the Spirit of Christ. The proof that we never knew him. The proof that that part of my heart has yet to draw near to the Lord. I won't say I haven't known him and I haven't loved him entirely, but that part of me has yet to draw near to him. Here's my question. Kyalpha has a reputation on campus. Some of that reputation is really good and is really positive, and we celebrate that that's what people think of when they think of Kyalpha. Some of that reputation is a little misguided and misinformed, and we scratch our heads and we're like, where did you come up with that idea from? Some of that reputation we're not so fond of. We're like, where did you get that from? It's not, it's not true, and it's not very flattering either. What if the reputation of this body of believers on this campus was that we are the kindest, most loving group of people on this campus? Not just theoretically because Christians are supposed to be kind and loving, but what if in actual experience, the reputation of this body of believers was, if you need help with something, go find somebody in Chi Alpha. Whether they know you or not, they're going to help you. If you're having a hard time with something, go find somebody with a Chi Alpha t-shirt on. They'll help you. Whatever it is. If your car breaks down, if you need help finding a building, if you need somebody to swipe you into the calf, if you need notes for the class that you missed, if you need fill in the blank, go find somebody from Chi Alpha. They'll help you. How would our campus be different if that was our reputation? The scripture says they will know that you are Christians by the way that you love. By the way that you love whom? We do a great job of loving one another. I see the way you guys love each other. I see, I see the way that you, that you look for people in this room who are alone. 
I watch you guys come into, into Old Main every Monday night, and I see, especially the D group leaders, I see the radar on, beep, 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 that's looking for somebody who's coming in without, without a friend group and who doesn't know anybody, so that you can drag them into community, so that they can experience the life that you have found in family and in fellowship in Chi Alpha. I see the way that you intentionally look for the unseeable one in this room. I see the way you guys share your material goods. I see the way you share your finances and your food and your transportation and your supplies, everything from textbooks to camping bags to, uh, to backpacks to, what, to calculators. I see the way you guys are so quick to generously share what you have with one another. I see the way you share your non-material goods. I see the way you make yourself available with time and how much time you sacrifice for one another. I see the way you share your emotions with one another and you are there to, to celebrate and to rejoice, but also to mourn and to be with each other through the hard times and to bear one another's burdens. I see the way you take care of each other. I see the way you intentionally get to know each other. Not just a name and a face and not just a face in the crowd. I watch you guys intentionally purpose yourselves to know the stories of the people around you. To know their past, to know their present, to know their dreams for the future. To know what makes them tick, what they love about God, to know what their fears are, to know the things they have overcome. I watched you invest yourselves in really knowing one another. And then I see what you do with that knowledge. I watch the way you guys find ways to communicate value to one another because of the things that you know. I watch how you protect one another's transparencies and how when you learn something about someone, you, you will speak words of encouragement and identity into broken places. How when you find out people like this thing or you find out when their birthday is or you find out when a test is, that you do sometimes grand gestures and sometimes small little things that just communicate, I see you and I know you and I value you. I see you guys do that again and again and again and again. I watch you pray for one another. I watch you guys lose sleep over each other when, when your brother and when your sister is in, is in a hard place. You guys love so well. God is doing an amazing work within this family of teaching us what it is to love one another and to bear one another's burdens. My question is, what would happen to our campus if we could learn not to stop loving each other, but to love with as much intention outward? People in your classes. How many of the people in your classes do you know well enough to love the way I'm describing? Your coworkers, your roommates, your family members, your teammates. What would our campus look like if we would love them as intentionally as we have loved one another? you to think again of that person who you don't like very much. Will you think of something specific that you can do to express love to that person?
Just think of that person who doesn't like you very much. Think of something specific. Be intentional. What is something you can do to express love to that person? Think of the person who's invisible to you. What can you do? You guys pray with me? Jesus, I pray that you would bring conviction. It's your kindness, Lord, and it's godly sorrow that brings us to repentance. And I know from my heart, God, repentance is appropriate right now. I don't feel condemnation, God. I don't feel bad about what I've done in a way that makes me want to go and hide from you and from other people, but I do feel conviction. I recognize the places where my heart is not like yours because your scripture says that where I don't show love, it means that I don't know you in that place of my heart. And I recognize, God, that there are people that I have not shown love to. Some passively, some actively. And my heart is saddened by the places where where that demonstrates that I don't know you. And my heart is saddened by the places where I have not portrayed your character to those people. I want to do different. I want to be different. I want your love to flow through me like like streams of living water. I want to have my eyes fixed on you, Jesus, so firmly that I don't worry about being generous because I don't worry about where my provision is going to come from. And so I'm able to give freely without worrying. I want to have my eyes so fixed on you that my identity is rooted in you that I'm not that concerned with whether or not people think it's weird to be kind because my identity comes from you and I know that their rejection comes from their brokenness. I want to experience your love for me so fully and so completely that that it washes out every other lie and every other deception and every other point of brokenness in my life. I want to feel my dependence on your body, Jesus. I want to feel the, uh, the interconnectedness between all of us, that when one suffers, we all suffer, and it's not okay. It's not okay, and it's a lie that it's even possible for me to sit in my house and be okay while my brother and my sister suffers and think that doesn't affect me and that I don't have a responsibility for it. You help me, Jesus. You help me to be closer to you and to be more like you and to walk in more of the fruits of your spirit. Those specific people that you guys are thinking of, will you begin to pray for them out loud?
Pray for opportunities to demonstrate love to them. Pray that that love would come with a revelation of Christ. Jesus, your word says that while we were yet sinners, you laid your life down for us. You teach us, Lord, to love those who haven't yet done anything to deserve our love. Because you've loved us. My Lord, I don't want to be a goat anymore. I don't want to be a goat. I don't want to have my head down and not see the needs around me. I don't want to be so busy that I don't have time to stop and meet a need when I see it. I don't want to be so selfish and self-absorbed that I don't want to meet a need when I see it. I want to be a sheep of your flock, my king. I want to love people the way you love them. I'm about to ask you if, if you want to before the Lord, not before anybody in this room, but before the Lord, if you want to commit yourself to intentionally loving specific people outside of this room. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet in just a moment. Realize that standing in response to that call, you are asking the Lord to inconvenience your life. It's never convenient to love people. It's always going to cost you something. The nature of love is that it is self-sacrificing. It's going to cost you time. It's going to cost you finances. It's going to cost you heartache. There will be great reward in it too, but I don't want anybody paying lip service to me or to the Lord and thinking you're half-heartedly committing to something easy. And so if you would say before the Lord, Lord, I'm resolved before you to intentionally and specifically demonstrate love, to people who are not in this room, will you stand to your feet? We pray, God, that you would demonstrate your love to a lost and dying world through us. You guys, you guys pray with me. We're intentionally not doing music tonight because I'm not trying to, to build up an emotional response that isn't there. I'm just trying to, to leave space for God to move on our hearts. You guys pray with me, God. We commit ourselves to loving a lost and dying world. A world that isn't easy to love and is messy and is broken and a world that doesn't know how to reciprocate kindness. 
We commit ourselves to, to demonstrate love to a campus that, that might scorn and might reject and might ask hard questions, and we commit ourselves to love again and again and again. We commit ourselves to love without ulterior motives. We're not going to do acts of kindness so that we can coerce people into D groups. We hope they will be in our D groups, but we're going to love them because you love them. And I believe in it, God, that there will be a demonstration of your goodness and your character that will flow out of this body that will counteract every, every lie and every stigma that is spoken of Christians. They will know we are yours by how we love. So we pray, God, that there would be a true representation of you that comes through our lives. We love you, Lord. I do love you. I love you with a frail and imperfect love, but with everything that I have, I love you, Jesus. You help me, God, to love you better, to love you more wholly and more completely, to love you with all my heart and my soul and my mind and my strength. Will you help me, God, to love my neighbor as myself? We commit ourselves to your work in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I think we got time for, for one more song to close us out. Worship team, if you want to come get set real, real quick. The things that you guys were thinking through, the specific people, the specific things... Will you guys pull out your phones right now and jot those things down before you forget them? Before you forget the mode and the mindset that you are in right now, when you get back to your dorm room later, later tonight, and, and because the enemy is a turd, you are tempted to think, oh, that wasn't a big deal. If the Lord is speaking to you in this moment, while well, you know that you know that you know that you are responding to the Lord, make some notes and write some things down to hold yourself to the commitment that you are making now when your memory wavers later on. Capiche? Awkward transition.